Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Tony here. If you've been enjoying One Step Beyond, and especially if you enjoy the fact we don't have ads running through it, please consider dropping something in the tip jar. Think of when you encounter a busker. You like what you hear, you put some loose change in the hat, and you go about your day knowing that you're doing your own little part to encourage creativity. Just look for the Support This Show link on whatever app you're using to listen along, or visit Supporter acast.com forward slash one step beyond thank you and now on with the show hey you and welcome to episode 28 of one step beyond a show all about positively engaging with the world outside our door alternative tagline step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life and this episode entitled equal playing field embraces both those premises and then some Now, if you're the rare person who has actually noticed that this episode is dropping one week later than the intended fortnightly schedule, I can offer an extremely good reason for that. I'm recording this episode from the beautiful old market town of Beverly in the East Riding of Yorkshire, which is a county in England, which is part of Great Britain, which forms part of the so-called United Kingdom, which is no longer part of the European Union. And while I'd love to say that this is a post-pandemic holiday, And while I did in fact intend on taking such a trip back to my birth country, and indeed Beverly is my birth town, once I was vaccinated and my mother was fully vaccinated in her care home here, and travel became somewhat easier, hopefully, as a result, unfortunately the journey was brought forward when said elderly mother was hospitalised and, quite obviously, family comes first. All the more so as this show, like so many podcasts you do listen to, I'm sure, is not part of my professional income. And talking of having side projects in your life, my guest today, Erin Blankenship, has one that makes my own hobbies and pastimes seem, well, minuscule by comparison. Just as pertinently, the episode demonstrates the importance of sometimes waiting for the stars to align and not being too impatient about a particular project. You see, in this case, I've been thinking for a long time how much I'd like to do an episode on Something about my favourite team sport, maybe yours as well, given it's the most popular in the world, and that is, of course, football. Or soccer, if you like. Heads up, we're going to interchange the words in this episode without apology or excuse. It's being called both across the world and continues to be. So within that, I'd be also wondering how I could perhaps do something about the growth of the sport in the UK. And then, of course, I'm always looking for the positive personal life story and usually a guest's personal project to focus on. Then, a few months back, I heard an interview with Laura Youngson on Athletic Brewing's podcast, Without Compromise. Laura had co-founded an organisation called Equal Playing Field as part of arranging a team of all-female multinational football players to compete in a proper match in the crater atop of Mount Kilimanjaro, setting a world record for the highest altitude football game ever played by either gender. 
Laura came across as a gregarious young Brit and I thought, well, as long as I can find a different angle and there was clearly a lot more there to discuss, then this sounds the right story to pursue. I reached out to Laura, who, among other things, has started her own football boot company, Ida Sports, exclusively for women, and didn't hear back. Which, you know, can be the case for those of us deluging multiple social media and email accounts and people who run charitable foundations and are trying to make a difference in the world while also trying to raise a family. Fair enough. But the idea popped back into my mind more recently and I figured I'd reach out again. And this time, inadvertently actually, I did so to her partner and co-founder, Erin Blankenship. And probably because in checking Erin's bio on the Equal Playing Field website, I saw that she had played professionally for the team I have supported so fervently all my life, Crystal Palace. Only when Erin got right back to me and I went to line up the interview while in the UK did I realise I'd reached the co-founder, but immediately had the benefit of ensuring I would be getting a different story than Laura's. And then, once I learned about Erin's day job, I was even more inspired. You'll understand why when you hear her. I'm going to do something different with this particular subject and interview and break the story across two episodes. This is partly so I can feature as much of the Hour Plus interview as possible without running the show too long. It's also to break up my editing process because unlike a lot of podcasts, I do edit for length and clarity and focus. And additionally, it should allow me to resume the personal updates as they pertain to One Step Beyond's general vibe in the latter portion of this show. Something I personally enjoy doing, something a number of you tell me you enjoy in turn, and something about which, even if you do turn off at that point, it's a process that helps me to make sense of my life and join all the various dots that connect travel, outdoor activity, healthy lifestyle, positive personal achievements, etc., etc. Erin and I talked by Zoom, her from my mother's home in Asheville, North Carolina, me from the living room of my mother's home in Beverly. We had a complete disaster the day of our initial attempt. We both thought it might have been down to our individual Wi-Fi, Regardless, we reconvened two days later and it went swimmingly. And again, speaking to patients and the stars aligning properly, I was better prepared and more relaxed, the medical emergency having subsided by then. I decided not to bring my professional Shure microphone overseas with me, but I did bring my Zoom H2N recorder, no relation to the software of the same name, frustratingly, and that's what I'm using for voiceovers now and how I recorded a hopefully professional track for my part of the interview. This is the same trusty recorder I've used for all my field recordings, including the Climb Up Killy, and indeed it sufficed for all the interviews and my narration for the podcast series I did with the band The Pixies. It's an incredible piece of equipment. I couldn't recommend it more highly, and that is not a paid endorsement. So, with all of that, strap on your football boots, or your cleats if that's what you prefer to call them, or indeed, any other kind of sporting footwear, or not, if you're the barefoot kind, which we thoroughly endorse on this show. Alternately, just sit back and project yourself onto an equal playing field as we go. One step So, how would you describe your day job, Erin? So I actually work for the World Food Program, which is one of the UN agencies that focuses on food security for populations worldwide. I'm based in the Middle East as a regional conflict advisor. And that means I basically assess the different conflict dynamics, uh, political entities, economic issues, et cetera, to help navigate the the World Food Program's uh, activities and to look for contingency and scenario planning 
in case more stuff comes up later. So on a day like today, when I think the ceasefire was just announced in uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian territories, is that somewhere you work in? In, in fact, uh, that's exactly where I'm deploying in about five days. So uh, the World Food Program is one of the main agencies supporting uh, displaced peoples, uh, so including including Palestinians or people impacted uh, on the Israeli side of the border. And my job becomes sort of supporting the security and the programming and the operations teams around supply chains and you know political sensitivities about whoever is involved, that sort of thing. That makes me feel very humble, to be quite honest. <laughs> I don't imagine that to be to be easy work whatsoever. And with regards, this might be a good lead-in to the reason that we're we're talking, because when we look at something like the conflict there uh, between Palestinians and Israelis, and it just seems unresolvable, never-ending, etc. I'm thinking of international conflicts in general, the international world in general. What what kind of things can unite people? Let me ask. Let me ask you that way. What kind of things can bring people together who have either religious, eth- ethnical, you know, international border issues that they can't mm-hmm. resolve? I think one of the most important things that I try to remind myself of in most of these contexts is that everybody generally is trying to achieve the same things. So, what I have uh, really looked for in in my peace building work has been more in what brings you together? What can we focus on as a group to develop some trust, develop some lines of communication that are outside of the really um, fraught and tense political spaces? And for me, sport is my favorite. That's that's what I like to work in uh, because it is a universal language that allows you to put a competition or a change, uh, you know, a difference of opinion you know, in the hands of a referee, <laughs> and, you know, everybody sort of plays by the same rules and, and you're allowed to sort of be reminded that most of what you're fighting for is is the same thing. And so within the context of sport, you've had a pretty active career in sport prior to doing this amazing work that you're doing with conflict management and, and food programs. Tell me a little bit about your background in sport. So I grew up in Saudi Arabia as a, as a kid from uh, an expat community called Aramco, so the the big oil company that sits in Saudi Arabia. And one of the best uh, circumstances of that was that if you were a kid, there was every sport available to you, right? So you're in a a climate that's 95% sunshine year round um, and a lot of opportunities to just sort of try a lot of different things and, and being in a geographical area that was small enough that you could get to multiple practices and sports were integrated in the school system and all of those sorts of things. So my family was very, very sporty. Despite living in Saudi Arabia and being female, I had a ton of opportunities. I was a a junior Olympic swimmer. Um, I was a competitive equestrian for many years. I played soccer slash football the vast majority of my life competing in Scandinavia in the summers. So I played college soccer in the U.S. Um, I competed uh, ultimately with training with different national teams for different countries that I was living in. And then uh, Olympic modern pentathlon I did for about four years while I was at university, uh, just working with the U.S. Olympic team. And But football, soccer was always my first love. So that's what I, I kept coming back to. And when I moved to the U.K., I ended up uh, walking on to the West Ham Reserves team on, in the women's premiership before it transitioned to the new the new Super League. So wow. that has been... As soon as you mentioned growing up in Saudi Arabia, 
Um, I'm immediately drawn to thinking, well, women in Saudi Arabia do not have equal opportunities for sport. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm aware that there are Western, let's call them Western communities, where you go to Mm -hmm. your own schools and have your own sporting activities. So you must have seen a real contradiction of sorts there. Were you, I mean, were you kind of uh, educated enough to be able to have a sense of that, even when you were young and playing sports? Hang on, I'm allowed to do things that the local women aren't allowed to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the challenges you have growing up in a culture like that, and all of us have, is what we see what we believe, right? You know, it's it's a very normalized situation to, you know, my mom's not allowed to drive off camp. Or if, if I'm out in the market, like everybody has to be covered up. You know, it sort of became a normalized pattern of existence. But I was lucky in that within Aramco, it actually was pretty mixed. So while it was designated as a more Western-leaning company and, and community, about 35% of the population in there was, was Arab, I, if not Saudi, then, then from other parts of the region. So I played with teammates and I had friends in school who came from every background in the region. So I, I didn't really hit me until I was probably about 14, 15 years old. And one of my teammates had to give up sport to go be in an arranged marriage right? You know, she was 15 years old. Uh, and, you know, she'd been allowed to pursue school up to a certain point and participate in sport. And she was a phenomenal athlete. She would have gotten full ride scholarships to any any university she could have wanted to go to, but that really wasn't, it wasn't going to be her path. And so that's when it started to crystallize a little bit more, this sort of low lying frustration and recognition that eh, this, this isn't, this isn't really right. And there's, there's a problem with this, and I have a problem with this, um, was given something more concrete to focus on. You mentioned um, playing for West Ham. Was that the only team that you played for? And was that professional at that point? And can you tell us what years it was as well? Sure. I realized that at some point around early 20s that I probably wasn't going to be an Olympic level athlete, that I, like, it takes a certain level of drive and focus and that this is the only thing you want to do with your life to to really deserve to be in that space. And I wasn't there. I love to be as competitive as possible, but there were other things I wanted to do. So when I went to the UK, one of the reasons I chose it was that I knew I would have a good chance of walking into competitive semi-professional or professional leagues while also doing grad school. I was living in a hostel uh, and one of the people who worked at the hostel used to coach at Nottingham Forest. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't have a place to live yet, but I had my football boots in my backpack and I was like, I got to play. I got to find a team. I didn't realize at the time that all of the women's teams trials had happened much earlier in the summer because of the way that the seasons worked. Uh, but there had apparently been some injuries during preseason at West Ham. And I was like, okay, I'll go try and, and see what I can do. And I, I went to a couple practices and then I earned my option to have a, a month long trial with the team. And then I, and then I was playing. And so those, that year would have been 2007 in the fall of 2007 when I moved to the UK. And so I, I played with West Ham on the reserves side for uh, that full season. So into, into 2008 summer. And then I moved across London and down South down to Clapham junction. And I couldn't make the two and a half hour one way commute to practice or games for four days a week, not on top of work and school. So I, changed clubs and started playing for Crystal Palace, which was uh, my home for the next two years. When I first came to the States, I was immediately drawn and aware of the fact that it was the most played sport in America. 
And there was a good reason for that because kids just loved it because Uh Uh it didn't require all the equipment and Uh also because both sexes could could play it. And I also remember going back to the UK uh, from the late 80s, let's say through the 90s, and and saying to people, you know, how popular the sport was in America. But I always got this kind of reaction. Well, yeah, the reason it's so popular is because girls play it. And (laughs) there was a a degree of sort of derision in Uh that. Yeah, exactly. And I I think a lot of it is reflective of the difference between how the U.S. and how the U.K. pursue sport. Right. So within the U.S. and within North America, I think Canada is the same. Uh, Sport is in your school systems. Right. So the reason that you actually see so many more women playing soccer, football and why it is the number one sport for women across the whole country is because of Title IX. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. So Title IX was legislation that was introduced in the late 70s that required by law that schools had to spend the same amount of money in programs for girls as they did for boys. And the easiest way to do that was to go into team sports. So something like uh, football meant that you could get a squad of 25 players and the budget would start to even out a little bit more. Now, let's I, I can tell you some nightmare stories about how winnings from my university experience in the NCAA went to support our men's American football team uh, with their 75 players, but that's neither here nor there. That happens all the time. Um, but the way, because the U.S. has uses, especially the university system, to develop a sport and develop an appetite for watching the sport, you saw, and they're doing the same thing right now with rugby, and that they're trying to see if they can build enough of public support and interest in it to then justify semi-professional leagues, to then justify professional leagues. And so on the women's side, that has that has been in the works since the 70s. And you can see the fruit of that labor if you just look at the track record, right? Like four or five Olympic medals, <laughs> it's number of World Cups, et cetera. So that's the American story. And for those who don't live in the States or perhaps don't know so much about Title IX, then the success of American women's soccer would seem to be evidence of the old adage, if you build it, they will come. There's finally evidence of a similar mindset in the UK, where I've seen media coverage of women's football, and by extension other team sports previously considered the sole provenance of the male species, like rugby, as Erin just mentioned, increase almost exponentially in recent years. I can give the example of my own team, Crystal Palace, which, to use football metaphors, appears to have relegated its previously prominent on-pitch female dancers, the Crystals, to a lower division and promoted in turn the actual female players, profiling them extensively on social media to the point that fans of the male teams can no longer ignore them. Two seasons ago, they also changed the team's name from Crystal Palace Ladies FC, as they'd been known since formation in 1992, to Crystal Palace FC Women. The weekend I arrived in the UK in the middle of May, I watched those women play a cup semi-final against Arsenal live on the club's YouTube channel and I appreciated that opportunity, even though Palace were comprehensively beaten. Later that same Sunday evening, I watched another women's football match. Hey, I was on travel quarantine, not like I had a ton of other things to do. And that was the European Champions League final where another London team, Chelsea, lost to a highly rampant Barcelona That game was also on YouTube and I especially appreciated the option to watch it because it was otherwise shown on a major pay cable TV channel. This certainly was a reflection of the women's game's newfound importance and indeed I witnessed extensive British media coverage of this super club face-off. 
Now, while some of that was likely due to an English team being in the final, I can tell from following British media as a matter of routine that there's been a concerted effort to turn some of the players and the unfortunate minority of coaching and backroom staff that are also female into household names. This is a far cry not only from when I moved to the States, not only from throughout the 1990s when the women's game across Europe was barely noticeable, but from actually way into the 21st century. I had a very funny experience um, while I was at West Ham and we were training for the FA Cup. It was uh, one of the quarterfinals, perhaps somewhere in there, but we were going up against Chelsea and all ready to start with, you know, girls had to practice at at 10 o'clock at night. We finished practice at 10 to 11 o'clock at night, right? So we'd start at 8 p.m. because we weren't allowed to be on the grounds when, when the men were there. Now, we were lucky enough to actually be able to use the same grounds as the men, but we were not allowed to be in the same space at that time. Um, our salaries for, for playing is about 40 pounds a game, right? There's just lots of those sort of indicators that you get from, from the league, from the expectations that, oh, well, you're the women's side. There's, you know, you can practice late at night. Uh, we got, we got kicked off a training pitch, our, our last practice before facing off with Chelsea, uh, for a 10 and under boys practice. And that, that's when I, I I had a bit of a a tantrum, um, that I'm not incredibly proud of. (laughs) but my teammates were like, Oh man, you are from the U S like, this was the moment where you're like, this is unacceptable. You have two national team members on this squad. We're facing off against major London rivals and the boys have a round Robin tournament this weekend. So we're, we don't get to use the pitch. We don't get to practice our free kicks. We don't, you know, like, how can you do this? Like, what are you, what message are you sending to us standing here? And my teammates were like, Whoa. But, but that was, that was one of those moments where I was like, I can't, I can't believe that it's 2007 and this is the conversation we're still having, you know, that we're still having at this point. And the women's national team in the UK wasn't even making a living wage at that point. You know, they're, they're making well under the, the 20,000 a year now, which is, is the baseline for women's national team that didn't get introduced until 2010. You know, you were on maybe, maybe Astro fields. If you got access to the pitch, maybe you had to practice indoors because the men's teams were using the fields outside, uh, only the first team got paid. You had to actually make the make the list each week to start in order to actually get paid um, the 40 pounds, which didn't even cover my train costs back and forth to practice every day. So Erin certainly had motivation to see change in football in terms of gender equality and clearly had the fighting spirit too. But she put that all somewhat aside as she graduated college and pursued her considerable non-athletic professional career. Until, that is, she got a call from a friend she'd made along the way. The same Brit I had heard on that other podcast and was first drawn to this story by. So about four and a half, almost five years ago, uh, a friend of mine, Laura, gave me a call at about three o'clock in the morning. I was in London at the time, about to start my new job on Syria. uh, So about to move back to the Middle East. And she had had a very frustrating couple of months and uh, it sort of cracked Right. You know, she was in a, a work situation where she was completely undervalued and underappreciated and far overqualified for the work that she was being told to do. Uh, and then she had a night where she was on the couch flipping channels, trying to find any women on TV in sport, any any sport, any language, any country didn't matter. She just she wanted to see women's sports as a, as a bit of an affirmation. And she couldn't find it. And that was the, the straw that broke the camel's backs. <laughs> 
she started looking around for a way to start challenging this. The fact that the UK press had more stories about racehorses than they did about female athletes. Uh, you know, this is all statistically like the numbers and the data is there to prove it. So um, Laura started looking around at some ideas and came across a cricket match that had happened on the top of Kilimanjaro a couple of years ago. She gets in touch with these guys and she's like, so can you run? Like, how big is the field? You know, like, what's your dimensions, et cetera. And uh, they're like, ah, we didn't really run. But, you know, in theory, in theory, you could do that. And then Laura calls me and she's like, hey. I want to play a football match at the top of Kilimanjaro. Do you think we can do it? And I was like, I'm in and we can absolutely do it. You know, her first question, she's like, who do you think from like the women's national team we could get to come play? I was like, well, <laughs> I didn't really play long enough to be able to make a, a huge number of friends with them, but let's, let's start calling people and seeing who we can find. And, you know, the idea was to play a game at the highest point on earth, the highest point in history. And, um, you know, we literally like used Google earth, to scan around for spaces because we wanted a full 11 a size pitch. <laughs> it had to be a surface that didn't have like major rock features in the middle of it, et cetera. And, and we came to Mount Kili and then that momentum started to build. So that was back in 2016, end of 2015, starting into 2016. And we started gathering these crazy women who were like, yeah, we'll do that. That sounds like a great idea. Now, how, how are we going to do it? And why do we want to do it? And um, that sort of gave birth to the idea of equal playing field uh, to look at challenging the status quo and looking at, you know, opportunity, equality, respect. That's what we want as athletes. That's what we want as women. Nothing more, nothing less. And with that sort of core credence, we were able to really start to find um, a lot of support in, in that there were people who understood immediately why we were doing what we were doing. <laughs> Climb to the top of the world to prove you're equal. Yeah, that makes sense <laughs> right. for, for most female women. Yeah, it was it, it's essentially saying that we can do anything that men could do and mm -hmm. better because men haven't even played a, a football match this high up. In right. Attitude. Exactly. Exactly. Right. It's it's higher than the you know the first or second Everest base camps. It's higher than the the stadium in Quito, which you know slaughters people every year because of the lack of oxygen. And so we really this really became a, a, both a symbol for the invisible mountains every day that women climb to uh, to do the things that they love and to and to be taken seriously for their talent and hard work. Uh, but also then you have the physical mountain and your own internal self-doubt and confidence and challenges that every player, every referee, every coach brought to that mountain as well. And it started to really just gel. Having done Kilimanjaro as somebody who was pretty damn fit mm -hmm. um, and having and knowing just how debilitating the altitude is, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. let alone the physical aspect of climbing it, how did you pull that off? <laughs> <laughs> I know uh, it's we we reflect on that quite a bit. Uh, we had you know Olympic gold medalists uh, on on our squad, right? You know uh, Lori Lindsay, who's a uh, we had a Canadian medalist. We had national team players. Like this is the hardest game we've ever played in our careers, uh, and in many ways the most important emotionally. But to to come back to that, we started working when we were recruiting people to come be part of this. We had a very strong emphasis on our preparation, right? So we were talking to altitude coaches, altitude emergency physicians. Um, we were talking to our medical team was actually led by a guy who spends half his time working for NASA. 
and altitude chambers. And, and so we also worked with Dawn Scott, who used to be, uh, you know, sort of the head trainer for the women's national team and has, has now come back to the UK. She's a Brit, phenomenal, phenomenal coach. And so she helped actually put together training programs for the women who signed on a couple of months ahead of time to be like, okay, this is going to kick your butt. This is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. Cause it's not just about getting to the top of the mountain. It's being able to run a 90 minute game at that level. And so a lot of this, we didn't know if it was possible. We did our best to prepare for it. And that was what we, and part of that preparation was taking the long route, right? So a lot of people who do Killy take, maybe do it in four to five days, right? We took a full eight days in order to acclimate. And we did sort of extra hikes every day, even after we'd made camp to go another little couple hundred meters up and then come back down, right? Like really trying to get our bodies ready. We even played a mid-mountain game, which in and of itself broke the world record. We were very deliberate about the pace at which we went. We went with a, a fantastic guiding company. We had uh, health checks every 10 minutes of the games, you know, people checking for consciousness. Um, people did go down. I mean, we were, we were very, very competitive. So we had slide tackles and diving headers and like, so, you know, so, they'd have to get checked before they were allowed to continue playing, right? Uh, we worked with FIFA on, on the rules about how many subs we were allowed. Uh, there was no running subs, but we, you know, we wanted to tick all the boxes. And so it was literally a year of, because of, in, our, in our initial enthusiasm, we thought that we could get it all done in four to five months. And then we realized that there was no way that we could organize it that quickly and do it the way we wanted to. Sure. I think if I went again, I would probably do a longer route. I mean, economy comes into that as well. The cost of going up, you know, there are different, there are different factors because I, I had totally planned after doing it to go back and do it again. And I fully understand why Kilimanjaro would have attracted you. Um, it's not as high, you know, it's obviously not the highest mountain in the world, but there aren't too many mountains of that height. It's the roof of Africa and it has this because it's volcanic. It has a you know a a crater that's not really a crater. Mm -hmm. It's a summit, so you you mm -hmm. have those options to mm -hmm. to get some kind of a football field up there. Whereas if you're actually yeah. climbing a real mountain, it's a jagged. <laughs> exactly. It's a you know, you're not going to be able to do anything up top yeah. except you know. Yeah, and we and we did our research. Flag. We really we really did look at a bunch of the highest mountains. We're like, all right, is there sufficient? But it was important to us that it was a full size pitch, and that was that was what sort of changed. Um, and the, so besides full-size pitch, but also to have a mountain that has a history of people and a community of people that goes up and down it, right? So this, this you didn't need to be a technical mountaineering expert to survive to get up Killy. You needed to be fit. You needed to be very dedicated um, and you needed a supportive team around you, but at least people could do it. Whereas if we were looking at some of the other options to be safe, and, you know, to be diligent on that side, you would really need to have technical climbers as well as professional soccer players. So that was um, not something we yeah. were preparing for in our first our first foray. And at the time, we it was our only foray, right? Like, so equal playing field, we didn't start it as an organization. We started it as this particular mountain and this particular project. Because on top of on top of playing the game, we also ran um, football camps for about a thousand girls and women in six different countries as part of this project, right? So all communities that sent women to come join us on the mountain worked with organizations in their home communities. So Argentina, Tanzania, uh, South Africa, et cetera, to, uh, we wanted there to be that tangible community connection, which I think is really critical for women's sport and probably something quite distinct from women's sport from men's sport because 
women's sport does not survive without community support. <laughs> There's in, in its history, it, it can't do it. So as we build our challenges, that is really the, the balance that we try to, to look at. So grassroots and the elite, like both of us working step in step to, to move, move the bar. Right. So what you're saying to me is if you were taking a woman from South Africa to the top mm -hmm. of Kilimanjaro, because I know you wanted to have an mm -hmm. international group, mm -hmm. that it was important that there was a connection to grassroots activities. You weren't just like trying to grab a famous player or a good athlete right. from one country. You wanted to say, and what is going on in your country so that other people, mm -hmm. other females have the same opportunities. So is that right. right understanding? Yeah, exactly. So it's... What, what's interesting is that those women tend to be the same, right? So I, I haven't met a single female professional athlete that is not involved in after-school programs, running sport for development, like supporting where they can support for development efforts, et cetera. So in many ways, it was easy to find women who were passionate about the community aspect and the supporting other girls and women to be able to benefit, but also very, very very competitive, very driven, very looking at changing the superstructures of, of professional and elite sport for themselves and, and for their teammates. Um, so we got we got lucky in that sense. So for example, Portia Medice is the, she's the first woman, she's first African to break the hundred goal mark for FIFA in her, in her professional career. Uh, she was going to try to come to Kili, but couldn't, but we ended up running a camp with her in um, Kailicha, which is one of the um, one of the camps that's sort of north of, of Cape Town, and you know she came for a whole week to just work with girls. You know, left left Swano, came over, worked with the girls, wanted to be a part of it, and you know we continue to to sort of touch base and, and keep track of what we're going on. So we had a lot of that as well. So as people found out about our story, media picked it up, and people started reaching out to us to be like how can we participate? How can we support it? We want to be involved. We love that you are actually doing something about this. And it's not sort of a standard fix, right? It's very pretty innovative. <laughs> so be like, you're going to go break a Guinness World Record to raise the conversation about gender equality in sports. We want to be a part of it. How can we do that? And the Guinness record that you broke was not just the highest game of football played by women. It's the highest oh, no. game of football played ever. Full, full stop. Yeah, all of our records have have broken. So we've we've set five now, uh, and every single one of them have been for sport. Full stop. There, we don't. We'll be through them. What are the other play. records? What are the other records? <laughs> so our, our second record uh, was at the Dead Sea. So the lowest the lowest game in history, which we like to articulate as as top to bottom change. Right. So we we've set the parameters. Now we'll we'll fix everything in the middle. To the best of our ability uh and then our next two we did in france at the women's world cup in 2019 we ran the longest uh largest five-a-side football match in history and we played with over 800 players for five days um and then the fourth five record, days straight i'm sorry to five days straight yes i'm sorry yes a 24 7 match during the the worst heat wave in europe's history uh, we had 800 players come in from over 65 countries uh, play, all ages. Uh, it was the first record we let men on the pitch for uh, as, as supportive, supportive teammates. Uh, and we also ran a week-long training event and camp for everybody who was participating. So we had over, over 200 women coming from sport for development organizations. Actually, over 100 nonprofits were involved in it, uh, local schools, 
Olympic Lyonnais uh, Academy was involved. Uh, we had this just great conglomeration focusing on participation and inclusivity and coaching without resources. And how do you, you know, how do you tell stories about women's football? How do you fundraise in an environment that is not conducive to, to women's opportunities, et cetera? All of that put together into one record. And then because we were feeling a little bit cheeky, we, uh, we decided to go for a fourth one that we hadn't prepared for, but with the most nationalities on a field. Uh, and so we had 54 countries on a pitch for a, for a five-a-side game. Okay. And then finally, uh, in, the, in the era of COVID, one of our team members, Dina Rochman, uh, who runs an academy in Bahrain, she's a former England national, but also uh, plays for the national team in Bahrain now, she set the world record for the number of penalties taken in 24 hours, which I think is a perfect record for, for COVID, where it's like you solo. Uh, she played against 24 keepers. You know, they got to change out every hour. She, she broke the record by 7,000 kicks. How many players from how many countries went up Kilimanjaro? Do you know offhand? Mm, within our squads, we had, uh, let's say, 35 women, maybe. So active, actual players, about 30 to 35 women um, from 22 countries in, right. our first, in our first match. We worked through our own networks, right? And I think that's one of the other things to really... Uh, underline is that EPF is very organic, right? The reason that these players came from these different countries is because that we've, I or Laura or someone else had met them before. We had crossed paths with them before uh, or, you know, had been involved in football or sport for development organizations in many of these places. Uh, and then we started getting a little bit more courage and working through the networks that we had to be like, oh, actually, I know the manager for half the US women's team we'll have a call, see maybe maybe somebody would be interested. And that's how we, you know, cross paths with the likes of Lori Lindsay and Rachel Unit and uh, Sasha Andrews, all all uh, Olympians. <laughs> so you you strike me as the kind of person that may and it might speak to what, what you went into with your day job and political science and conflict management, etc. That if you meet someone, you're gonna get their number. You're going to make sure that there's a relationship there that you can mm-hmm. always call on them. I mean you you sound like a the the classic uh, example of a doer, you know, somebody Yeah. Yeah, and I think the th- the reason that works is is because you meet other doers, right? And that's the thing that you 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 start to figure out very quickly in in the sports space, uh, and and certainly in my day job, there are people who do a lot of talking, and then there are people who do things, and uh, you really find yourself gravitating towards the doers because you don't want to deal with the excuses and the well maybe next time and maybe if we reframe it, it's like no, no okay as long as we're moving forward, we actually want to achieve things. And that's where people found us. I mean, we started, but then people started coming out of the woodwork, reaching out to us to get involved. You know, we were reached out, like, can we do a documentary on you? Can we put a film together? Can we um, be a part of whatever the story is? And that is, that's something that we've really benefited from. And, and the power of the network is unbelievable. The power of actually who you know, and who's willing to jump on board for, for a meaningful movement, for a meaningful challenge uh, is great. And that's, that's what gets reinforced every time and why it gets easier in many ways every time because we now have this track record. Like when we say we're going to do something, we do it.
As you might hope, Equal Playing Field can be found at equalplayingfield.com. And there's a fantastic documentary about the climb up Kilimanjaro, which you can find on beinsports.com. That's the word B-E-I-N. That's two words. Sports.com. Just search for Equal Playing Field documentary. It's entirely free. It's about an hour long. And although I found the first part of it a little too much like an advertorial for the concept, once they actually really get going on the climb and the camaraderie kicks in, which is one of those aspects of doing something like a Kilimanjaro, it just becomes amazing. And as for the game itself, I cannot believe I'm watching it. I cannot believe these people participated in a full match. I cannot believe they came down alive. It's tremendous. It will be hard for you to actually end the movie without tears in your eyes. There is another film being made about it, and uh, I'll give you some links to the various trailers so that you can follow on with those as well and come back for the next episode where we've got a lot more to talk about because Equal Playing Field has done so much more. My thanks to Erin for being such a good sport, uh, especially when we had the hiccup initially. And uh, I hope she's doing great off in the Middle East right now. So it feels like a long time since I have done one of these post-show updates. And I am going to recap a little bit now about, you know, We have been emerging from lockdown. It's interesting. I got back to the UK just as Britain were, just like two days before Britain was uh, reopening. It had been my hope that the UK would have the USA on a green list, meaning I wouldn't have to quarantine, especially as I'm fully vaccinated. Unfortunately, as you probably are aware, it seems like vaccinations are a voluntary issue, i.e. a lot of us are doing it to protect those who have stupid conspiracy theories as to why they shouldn't bother. And um, I got no grace on that regard, and I still had to quarantine, which was incredibly frustrating as my mother was in the hospital just 10 miles away. But that's by the by. Uh, Certainly in New York, and I think across the United States, we've had a much more lenient winter than in the UK, where there really was pretty much a thorough lockdown for many months. I arrived over here to days and days and days of rain, which didn't make driving into the local city to hospital any more fun. But the weather cleared up for what we call here a bank holiday, which is the Whitson holiday, same weekend as the Memorial Day holiday in the States. And uh, by then, a lot of requirements had eased up. The pubs had reopened, indoor dining reopened. And to some degree, it's been like pandemic, what pandemic? Prior to all of that, I have been continuing with my own outdoor activities. I did run a proper half marathon a few weeks back now, several weeks back now. It was organized by the Albany Running Exchange, the same people who organized the marathon I participated in in November before we had to all lock up shop again. The difference this time was I entered the race, paid my um, my entry fee, and then realized that I had gone and double booked myself with a parent- parenting requirement I couldn't get out of, which is taking my son over to his Rock Academy weekend rehearsal. So what I did is uh, you uh, had the option to do the race virtually. And uh, so I dropped him at the rehearsal and I drove onwards and upwards to Albany. And I started the race just as the organizers were packing up the finish line and the start line, which was the same place. It's really quite amusing. It was like the strangest half marathon I've ever done because I was trying to go at race pace, but with nobody else around me. Um, I did pretty well. 
I did pretty well. I actually sort of beat my estimated time by five minutes. It's still three or four minutes off where I was a couple of years back pre-pandemic. Uh, that's For me, that's understandable. I know a lot of fastest known times were broken during the pandemic. For me, all of this period has been a chance to sort of maybe ease up a little bit and just enjoy the activities and keep the general level of fitness and stamina and to some extent speed going without thinking as I get this much older that I'm going to keep breaking any personal bests, at least not in the shorter distances. So I was really, really pleased with it. It was uh, it was an interesting experience. Then I got back in the car, drove back down and picked my son up from rehearsal. Um, I also got to enter, um, well, I actually got to be accepted into Manitou's Revenge. And this frightens me a little. It's the biggest, meaning the longest race in the Catskills of the three long trail races we have in the mountains each year. It takes place on the weekend of June 26, 27 this year. And the reason that goes over two days is a number of us will likely finish after midnight and into uh, the Sunday. It covers 54 miles of the mountains, uh, including most of the Devil's Path, which is rightly named and is considered the hardest uh, trail on the entire eastern seaboard. But that's just the middle sort of 10, 12 miles or so. It's 54 in all, um, about 15,000 foot of elevation and tough elevation at that. I have done the race once before back in 2017 and had such an incredible day. I genuinely, genuinely had one of the best days of my life, despite obviously how strenuous it was. Um, finished in just under 18 hours and you've got a 24-hour cutoff, which indicates that this race feels more like a 24-hour 100 miler than your standard sort of 50 mile plus. Um, had such a wonderful day. I felt I didn't want to do it again uh, initially. The next year I volunteered. I was at the last aid station, which was on the same mountain pretty much where I lived. So it was close by. I actually spent longer on the course that day than I had when competing because we were the last aid station and somebody got stuck at the end and we have to wait for them until three in the morning and then get that person off the mountain. Um being a sucker for punishment, but also genuinely wanting to give back. I volunteered the next year. Uh, the race wasn't held last year. I thought I would be ready again this year. Um, and so I'm hoping that a lot of my winter hiking, where I've ticked off some of the uh, some more of the Catskill 3500 peaks, I'm hoping that's going to stand me in good stead. I'm hoping some of the running I picked back up on the mountains as the snows melted in recent weeks will also stand me in good stead because... I'm now over in the UK. It's a month-long trip. There are no Catskill Mountains here. I could drive over to Snowdon or the Scottish Highlands or the Peak District, and uh, there's a possibility I will do uh, before this trip is out. But there aren't really too many 2,000-foot climbs, 1,000-foot climbs, 1,500-foot rocky climbs, such as you get in the Catskills one after another after another. I have been out on a couple of super long runs. Uh, one of them was a 30-miler, which didn't actually seemed that impressive to me until I posted about it um, on Facebook and a bunch of my friends. Uh, that's pretty phenomenal to them. Um, the, the climbs are steep. There's a lot of hill running to be done here, fell running, they call it. Um, just even trail walking where you, you, you climb like, you know, two, three hundred feet in sort of nothing. I mean, really steep, almost like, you know, almost like climbing a Catskills mountain, except that you're doing it on grass and mud. There's none of this like rocky terrain where there might be a boulder and a step and another boulder. You're kind of figuring walking penguin like like you've got your skis on and you're kind of trying to walk uphill with your skis on. It's, it can feel like that. So actually, there is a lot to be gained from it. Um, 
And I followed that up with another run a week later that uh, just this past weekend where I, my legs were tired. I'd done too much during the course of the week and I could feel it. So I'm easing off right now with a view to getting one more super long adventure in, possibly on the North York Moors. Uh, got some recommendations and maybe I'll take the recorder out on that one, assuming I can find something interesting to say about it. All right. With that, I'm going to sign off for now. Thank you so much for being part of this. Erin will be back next week, or my interview with Erin will be back uh, in the next episode. And I'm uh, going to see you out with music from the young'un once more. I miss him. I miss everybody back home. And uh, I'm uh, enjoying myself as much as I can over here. I'm now out to enjoy another lovely day. Bye-bye. <laughs> One Step Beyond is written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music is by Noel Fletcher, unless otherwise stated. The theme song is by Madness, used with permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. Special thanks to Radio Kingston for airing these episodes and for supplying studio space when not under lockdown. If you like what you hear, please consider throwing us a tip via the Support This Show button on your phone or by visiting supporter.acast.com slash one step beyond lowercase. You can also hit the subscribe button and or leave a positive rating and or review. It all helps. One Step Beyond is on social media, mainly on Instagram. Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher there or on Facebook and Twitter and we should come up straight away. To subscribe to a newsletter, to reach out via email, and especially if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, the address is one step beyond at ijamming.net. One Step Beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man, and most likely a few that have yet to be discovered. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay active. <laughs>